Well, good morning once again. It is a joy to be back and for us to uh, get back to 1 Corinthians, this book that we've been working our way through for more than a year now. We are in chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians. Um, And just by way of review, for those who have been here for some or much of this study, in antiquity, in the first century, what were some of the things that Corinth was known for? What were some of the things that the Corinthian church was known for? Tell us about this church. If, uh, if we were just all transported back in time and somebody said, hey, let's go visit the Corinthian church, you'd say, well, what's it like? Uh, and, and someone else might say, what? What are some of the things that the Corinthian... Yes? Uh, sexual immorality. Sexual immorality, that's right. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, the... The church, in fact, to be called a Corinthian in the first century was an insult. If you were an immoral person, somebody might say, you Corinthian. And everybody knew what they meant because uh, Corinth, of course, uh, was a navy town, and all navy towns are immoral. Um, uh, But, uh, well, this one was unique because it was, if you look at Greece, ancient Greece, it looks like two big Greece splotches, uh, one on top of each other, and it is joined together by a narrow isthmus, just like Catalina Island. And uh, it has, um, it, it was very dangerous to sail around the lower portion of Greece. So they would come right into Corinth on the east coast, and they would actually have slaves drag the ships across. It was faster, cheaper, and safer to do that. And all the sailors would then wait in Corinth uh, while the ship was being dragged across to the other side, and then they would make their way over and get on their ship and go on their way. And so it became known for its prostitution, its immorality, and that, that kind of filtered its way into the church. One thing we could be glad about is that because of all the issues that that church had, we have some very clear teaching about marriage, divorce, remarriage, sexual immorality, uh, being free from that, and so forth. So it's a, it's a very helpful book for the church today. What are some other things that Corinth was known for? Yes? Uh, they sort of offered spiritual gifts of tongues, prophecy. Yeah, they were, they were really focused on uh, spiritual gifts, and they were seeking after the showier ones, the flashier ones. We learn in chapter 14 that tongues was one of the ones that they prized the most. Um, let's shift a little bit. Now let's imagine that we are in 2022. And uh, what is Grace Community Church known for? If somebody says, oh, you go to Grace Church, I've heard of that church. What are they saying? Yes. Expository preaching, right, which is, uh, which is what? Yes? Yes? Okay, verse, okay, consecutive exposition is verse by verse, chapter by chapter, uh, book by book, explaining what the text says, what it means by what it says, and what we should do about it, all right? It's actually exposing the text or uh, explaining the text and applying it. That's what expository preaching is. And we do consecutive exposition here where we often go through books. Yes? Um, Hymns, big worship, big choir, People say, man, that choir is bigger than our whole church, right? And, uh, and excellent music, orchestra, right, yes. Um, we have world-class uh, violinists, right, last week. Did you guys see that? Was that last week? Yeah, okay. What else? What is, what is Grace Church known for? 
a legal battle. Okay, yeah, so we, we, we stood up against uh, the government, right? Okay, and we, we, we said we're going to defend our First Amendment right, but we're gonna, before that, we're going to defend our biblical right to worship and to gather together whether we have a legal right or not. And uh, somehow we got through that. Um, yes? Okay, so without talking about other churches, uh, well, yeah, so what does that mean? What does that mean? We're out of the way. We're the church out of the way. Well, I think, let's say that uh, we, we have a high, we regard highly what? Scripture and truth. And okay. Uh, now, within Grace Church, what is steadfast known for? If somebody says, let's go to steadfast, uh, what is, uh, what do you say? What's that like? Yes. Oh, yeah, we just, we have a small room, but we're all packed in. Yeah, that's right. Okay, so you're in the hallway, right? So good to see you guys back there. All right, yes. What else? The track team, yes. The track team and all those fast-moving track guys with their engagements, right? And Yeah, okay, yes. Warmth and unity. That's good. Yeah, we encourage um, people really... Showing love for one another, yes. Friendliness and teachability. Friendliness and teachability. Well, those are good. This is, this, yes? Bible Bible studies, yeah. So what I'm trying to get at and what I was fishing for, this was a fishing expedition, uh, expedition, not exposition. Um, (laughs) What I was fishing for is that When we get to 1 Corinthians 13, Paul's whole point to the Corinthians is you're known for a lot of other things, but you should be known for love. If there's one thing you should be pursuing, it is love. If there's one thing you should have predominant in your life, it is love. And as I thought about Grace Church and all those things that we are known for, we should be known first and foremost for love. And when it comes to steadfast, since we're studying 1 Corinthians 13, we especially have a responsibility. And as you listen to this this morning, my desire is that you would be thinking to yourself, how might I personally, practically live this out within the context of the local church body? Because Paul was writing to a church that was known for other things. And sometimes these things are not... Uh, they don't isolate one another. I mean, obviously, sexual immorality and true biblical love are not compatible. But when it comes to truth, for example, which Grace Church is known for, right? Um, But the loving thing to do is to stand up for the truth. But whenever people speak of us and our fellowship together, they should be blown away like those who wrote about the early church and said, behold how they love one another. It should be astonishing to them, like they have never seen this kind of love before. And so as we, we look at this, we're reminded of the warning in, in Revelation chapter 2, when it has the letters to the seven churches, and we have the, the, the church in Ephesus, which, where, where John the Revelator wrote, 
Uh, verse 2 of Revelation 2, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put, those, you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. So they have endurance, they have perseverance, they've stood up for the truth. I mean, these are all great things. But John writes this on behalf of our Lord, to his church, but I have this against you that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. And so there is this idea here, and there they were talking about their first love for the gospel and for Christ, but that should overflow into a love for one another. And so we're thinking about 1 Corinthians and we're thinking about this. Out of all the places in the world, out of all the churches in the world, out of all the churches in the States, in California, in Los Angeles, uh, out of Grace Community Church, steadfast should be known for love. And so, um, just, I I don't want to stop there. I really really want to drive this home because I feel like um, we in practice don't always believe that this is what our Lord would have us do. And, and the church is, 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 is swayed and torn against all kinds of different things, that, um, some of them good, some of them not so good. When we think about um, the social justice movement and, and, and the way that focus, churches are focusing on racial reconciliation and the poverty and all these things, so... Do we want racial reconciliation? Yes. Do we, want, do, we, do we like poverty? No. We're not the church that's like pro-poverty. Like, yes, let's, let's, let's see a lot of poor people. Okay? You know, uh, but even if we eradicated poverty, if we didn't have love, it would be meaningless. And so love has got to be primary. And what's interesting is that churches today are buying into this idea that we could, we could, the world will listen to us if we do this, if we get rid of poverty or if we uh, have the best conference in the world or whatever it is, the world will see us and see our genuineness. But what did our Lord say in John chapter 13, verse 35? By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have what? Love for one another. And so if there's something that we're going to focus on to try and display to the world that we have Christ and that this is different, they will see the love that we have from one another and that will so overwhelm them that this is really a different place that they will see Christ, that they will say something's different about those people. Something's different. Either they are the most deceived, craziest, most foolish people in the world, they are fools for Christ, or they have something that is true that we don't have and we need to learn more of it. So we think of Paul writing to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 3 verse 12, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all just as we do to you. So his prayer for churches was that they would increase in love, 1 Peter 2, verse 17, honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. And so this idea of loving one another is essential for us. And in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7, we find 15 practices of love. 
actually 16 if you include verse 8, love never fails. But as we look at this, we're going to call these practices because the passage does not say love looks like this, but rather it does this or it does not do this. They are active verbs. Uh, most of them are active verbs. There are some who, that involve you, and so they, but they are middle verbs or a couple passive verbs in here, but they are all verbs. They are all showing action. Love is active. Love does not simply feel patient. It practices patience. It doesn't have simply merely kind feelings, but it does kind things. It doesn't simply recognize the truth. It rejoices in the truth. It should be something that we do, that we, we, we put into practice. And the world, of course, is, is off on this. And we've talked about this many times that the world sees love as a feeling, an emotion, um, a joyous affection. And while joyous affection is great, that is not the prize. That is not what we're trying to, to gain. What we're trying to do is practice love. And we believe that the more you actually endeavor to practice love, the more likely you are to appreciate love and to have those feelings of joyous affection. And this is hard for us to understand. We don't believe it because we seek, we want love, but we're not thinking about action as, a, as, 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 as love, something that, that we're doing towards others, that somehow that would bring us that joyous affection. But there are a million, million little, little ways that we see this, but we don't think about them. One thing I don't think about oftentimes is making the bed in the morning. It's not something that... Um, well, my mother had me do it when I was really young, but somewhere in high school, I went to high school, and so I stopped, and then I uh, got married, and uh, not in high school, but sometime <laughs> after, and, 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 and uh, this is important to my wife because when the bed's made, the room looks clean. No matter what's happening, if the bed's made, the room... Amen, yeah. So, <laughs> so I'm going to be honest with you, I don't enjoy making the bed. All right. Any other husband here wants to say that they do and lie? Yeah. Oh, sorry. I, uh, no. Okay. I don't enjoy making the bed. Uh, and everything in me, when I do it, wants to do it like kind of sloppy so that she sees I'm not good at it and so that she will do it more often because it's like, don't worry, don't, don't worry. I mean, we're having people over and so the pillows have to look a certain way and, you know. But every once in a while, I determine that I'm going to make the bed like I have never made it before. (laughs) And I will do hospital corners, which I don't even know what they are, but I think there's something about putting it down and bringing it over diagonally and tucking it in and, you know, so that your feet are like this at night, you know. Uh, (laughs) And I will put such an extra effort into it. And here's what happens. As I'm doing that, I get a little bit of joy. Why? Because I like making the bed? No, I hate making the bed. Because I know that she will see that I've actually tried, that I've actually tried to do something with a little bit more effort, and that'll bring her joy because she's going to say, he loves me, that's why he's doing it this way, even though it's still not up to my standard. He loves me. And so I find joy doing something I don't like doing because I know she will like that I do it. 
And I'm convinced that as we look at these attributes of love and we ask ourselves, not how can people, you know, love me more, but how can I actually put these into practice within the body of Christ so that other people will be so blown away by it that I actually find joy doing it and have feelings of joyous affection towards others where it's not fake, where it's genuine. Whether they see it or not, the Lord sees it. And so because he loves me, I am motivated to love his body because it's his body. And so our, our focus, even though we are doing things towards one another, is now directed towards Christ. And we come to 1 Corinthians 13. I'm going to read verses 4 through the beginning of verse 8. And the title of this message is, Love Is. Love Is. Verse 4, love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. As we look at these 13 practices, I will remind you that before our break, in the very end of June, I preached a message entitled, Love is Patient. And we spent the whole time just talking about patience. And uh, so if you weren't here, it is uploaded now. It's finally been uploaded, so you don't have to be patient for it anymore, but it's there. And you can go back to it. So we're going to jump in right now to the second practice of love, which is Love is kind. Love practices kindness. Patience is long-tempered, we said, which means it's a long time before your tempered is aroused. Uh, and kindness is a companion of patience. They go together. They are friends. They hold hands. We often find them actually together, patience and kindness, because it's not patience when you say, I'm waiting, right? That, that's clearly Just waiting is not equivalent to patience. Patience involves a great measure of kindness along with it. They are companions. We find them together in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We find them together in Galatians chapter 5. Listen to this verse, Colossians 3 verse 12. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies kindness, humility, meekness, and long-suffering. And so we have that kindness with long-suffering. Patience is willing to take, but kindness gives. If you are extremely patient, you can take an extreme amount of difficulty in your life. But if you are extremely kind, you will give an extreme amount of blessing towards others. And if you are patient and kind, you will be giving an extreme amount of blessing while you're enduring a great amount of difficulty. Patience accepts injustice with a good attitude, 
kindness is actively giving goodwill to others, even those who treat you poorly. The word kind here is a word where the root of it has this idea of useful, useful. It's related to the idea of serving and being gracious. We uh, hosted a missionary family one time a few years ago, and they came and were at our house, and they were uh, cooking something in the kitchen. I'm not sure why they were cooking, but they were helping, I think, in the kitchen. And they said, do you have this? And it was some sort of spoon or utensil or something. I don't, I don't remember what it was. And we said, no, we don't have one of those. And they said, oh, okay, so they made do. Shortly after they left, Amazon delivered that item to our house. They had gone online, and they had ordered it for us so that it would be useful for us if we ever needed it or for the next time, I guess, they came back, and if they needed it, it would be there. But it was, it was the idea that it was kind, it was useful. It was, this is something that they need. This is something we can do. So we are going to express kindness or usefulness. It, it, it is very closely related. There's an interesting contrast in Romans 3.12. Just listen to this passage. Romans 3.12, it says, All have turned aside together and they have become useless. That word useless is the negated version of kindness. So it's the negative side of kindness. It's the same word. They have become useless. There is no one who does good. That word good is the same as usefulness or kindness. So you see that contrast in Romans 3.12. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is no one who does good. There is not even one. And so we think about this attribute. And like all these attributes that we find in 1 Corinthians 13, the the prime example or the ultimate example of each one of them is God because God is love and God is kind. And so we come across his kindness in scripture frequently. Titus chapter three, verse four. But when the kindness and love of God, our savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. The kindness and the love of God brings salvation. First, first Peter chapter 2, verse 1 and 1 through 3. It says, Therefore, laying aside all malice and deceit and hypocrisy, envy and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. There's this idea that God's kindness overwhelms us and we desire more of him and to know more about him. Romans 2, verse 4, or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? And so God's kindness towards us, you think about redemption, that angels, fallen angels, as far as we know, have no means of redemption which is why they look upon our salvation with wonder, longing to see what is happening with us because we are rebels against God like they were. And yet in his kindness, God has demonstrated a love for us through the sacrificial death of his son as our substitute. The kindness of God should motivate us to give up selfishness and jealousy and being spiteful and proud and all these attitudes that are the opposite of loving kindness. Remember, that it's, it's the Corinthians who had this idea of 
of seeking themselves first. They had this veneer of outward spirituality that was false. And so we were reminded at the outset of what love is all about. It is to practice patience and kindness. A third patient, a third practice, now he starts to have a list of what it is not, the negative practices. Love does not practice jealousy. Again, verse 4, love is not jealous. Jealous. What's the difference between envy and jealousy? What is the difference between envy and jealousy? Anybody ever look that up or ask that question? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So in English, we make that distinction. In English, we make that distinction, and typically, jealousy is not wanting someone else to have what we have. And envy is wanting what somebody else has. But this word in Greek is different. It has both ideas in mind. The word originally meant to boil, and it's sometimes used in a positive sense, actually. We find it in 1 Corinthians 12, if you turn back a chapter to verse 31, but earnestly desire, that's the same word there, desire the best gifts, and yet I'll show you a more excellent way, or chapter 14, verse 1, one chapter past chapter 13, pursue love and desire spiritual gifts but especially that you may prophesy. So it can be used positively, but is often used negatively. And this was especially uh, for the Corinthians. We find them rebuked in chapter 14. If you skip down, look at verses 4 and 5 in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, where it says, one who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church. Now, I wish that you all spoke in tongues But even more that you would prophesy, the greater one is one who prophesies than the one who speaks in a tongue unless he interprets so that the church may receive edifying. So verses 4 and 5, he's kind of rebuking the church, saying that you all prize tongues as the great thing, but tongues is meaningless unless it's interpreted. And so what's better, and that tongues were known languages, it was a known uh, speaking, being the ability to speak, supernatural ability to speak in a known language that you had never learned. Uh, and then it was interpreted by someone uh, who presumably did not know that language either, but had the supernatural gift of interpretation, interpreting it so that the church could be edified. But prophecy was speaking forth the very words of the Lord uh, in a way that everybody could understand them in the language that everybody knows. And so Paul's saying, much better desire that you have teachers who could, who could bring you the word of God. And the word of God was still being revealed at that time, but we have a complete revelation through the word. But he goes down in verse 12 and he says, so also you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, same word, they're jealous, seek. That's also a related word from the same root. Seek to abound for the edification of the church. Since you are, uh, have a lot of zeal or desire, spiritual gifts, desire to build one another up through the word. And so... This is the, one of the problems that Paul was dealing with in Corinth. And so when we come here and he says jealousy, and we have this idea of 
jealousy in the church today. What are some ways we are jealous of one another in the church today? You come to, yes. I'm sorry? Someone's title. Oh, yeah, Dr. Reverend Pastor Brian. Right, yeah, so uh, titles. Yeah, that's a, that's a funny thing. Man, you know, and you go overseas, it gets even funnier. You know, one of the things the, <clears throat> sorry, the American Revolution uh, uh, gained for us was we got rid of a lot of titles because it used to be the minister of this and the minister of that and all this. And so we have like the secretary of defense, like it's a lesser, like we, we abandoned some of those. But even in the church, you go overseas and you meet the right reverend, like as opposed to the wrong reverend or whatever. But it's like all these titles and uh, we, we had a, we had a young couple here in Steadfast get married. This was great. Um, and uh, uh, he meets his father-in-law, for future father-in-law, for the first time while he's dating. And he keeps on calling his father-in-law by his first name. Uh, and uh, his, his father-in-law's name happened to be Brian. So he kept on saying, well, Brian, Brian. It wasn't me, but anyway, I don't know. His name. So anyways, uh, and uh, so... Uh, uh, Finally, the father-in-law says, listen, I really wish you would call me Mr. and give his last name. And the, son, the future son-in-law says, I didn't realize we were using formalities here. Please refer to me as doctor. And so, because he had his doctorate. This young kid in his 20s had his doctorate. So uh, he told that story at the wedding. I was like, this is, the father-in-law told that story at the wedding. So eventually there was some affection. But I mean, really, We get so caught up in titles. And I think that another thing are our giftings. You know, somebody has a beautiful voice. Oh, I wish I could sing like that. And we express jealousy instead of really praising God for that person and the way God has gifted them. And so uh, that, is, that is one of the, the ways that we can practice this is the next time you catch yourself looking at someone else in the church, or coming to church and thinking, well, what do I have to offer? You are here to serve. You are here to use what God has given you to build up the body of Christ. And so don't come to church just thinking, hey, what are we going to get out of it this Sunday? But be intentional about, or, or I just don't have what somebody else has. You know, I'm an ear, I'm not an eye. A fourth practice that should teach us to love is love does not practice boasting. Love does not practice boasting. It says in verse 4, love does not brag. So true love is the opposite of a boastful spirit. Um, The New American Standard says brag, but New King James says parade itself. Love is not ostentatious. It doesn't talk conceitedly. This is the other side of jealousy. If jealousy is wanting what someone else has, then boasting is trying to make others jealous of what you have. This is a huge problem in Corinth, right? Because they all wanted the showy gifts. Why? Because of love for one another? They wanted to be seen as somebody who had something somebody else doesn't have. Take a look at 1 Corinthians 14 again, verse 26. It says, what is the outcome Then, brethren, when you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for 
edification. He's saying, hey, what are you doing this for? Why do you want these flashy, showy gifts? Is it boasting? There is no room for boasting. The world says completely the opposite, that boasting is something you should say. You are number one. You're good enough. You're smart enough. People like you. Um, Every athlete, every, every person that is worldly wants to characterize themselves as better than they are. This is why social media is such a dangerous thing because it's like, oh, I'm going to take a picture with the phone up here because then I only have one chin. And if I'm down here, I've got two chins. And I, I don't want both chins on, on my profile because I don't want them to see like I might really be. I want them to see as better than I am. Or whatever it is. Oh, yeah, this is, a, this is this, you know, it, it's hard. And I'm, I'm not saying give it up altogether. I'm just saying give up a lot of it. Um, I'm just saying anything that we're doing that's all about, you know, it, it could be as innocent as, um, you know, having a, your Bible open at a coffee shop and taking a picture of it and, oh, the sweet aroma of coffee and God's Word. You know, and it could be meant to be an encouragement, but be careful, Not that coffee is sin. <laughs> um, when we think about boasting, I think Paul even hints at it in 1 Corinthians 13, 3, where he says, And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. And I just ask you, what motivation would you have to sell everything and give it to the poor? If it's not love, it must be boasting. And this is hard because it, it gets at not what we are doing, but why we are doing it and our heart motives. And Paul said in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 29, that no man may boast before the Lord. And in verse 31 of 1 Corinthians 1, he says, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. I came across this passage. I was so excited because 1 Corinthians chapter 1, um, verse 31, is an Old Testament quote. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. You know where it's from? Jeremiah chapter 9, exactly. So turn with me back to Jeremiah chapter 9 because I started to look at this passage. I like this passage. I'm... I'm uh, I'm thinking about preaching this passage, actually. Um, Jeremiah chapter 9. It's in verse 23, where it says, Jeremiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 23. I'll read down to verse 25. Thus says the Lord, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might, let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Verse 25, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, that I will punish all who are circumcised and yet uncircumcised. He talks about all those who are Israel, who are following me, those who are Jews, and yet in their heart, 
They're not right with me. And we have this passage, and I love this Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, because it tells us what does it mean to boast in the Lord? And it's the opposite of boasting in yourself and three categories of boasting that we have. Look at verse 23, uh, wisdom, boasting about how smart you are or, or you know, uh, strength, boasting about, you know, the time you got for the mile or, or you know, which is what we do to welcome people here. But, um, you know... Uh, Whatever it is, what, what is your strength? What, what is it you like to talk about? What is it that excites you when people say, oh, yeah, well, don't you do this? Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, um, or wealth. Or wealth. Those are the things that people typically boast in. Jeremiah 9, 23 covers them all. Wisdom, strength, and wealth. Just think about that and listen to this verse from 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 4, 7. For what makes you differ from another, and what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? So there's this idea that anything related to wealth, strength, or wisdom You only have that because God gave that to you for a purpose. And if it's a gift from him, why are you boasting that you have it? There's a place for honor. I'm not telling you to go burn all your trophies, just the ones you're proud of. No, I... I, I, (laughs) um, But we think about this boasting... Um, let's talk about what is boasting in the Lord. What does that look like? How do we practically boast in the Lord? Take a look at verse 24 of Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 24. But let him who boasts, boast of this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. And so, so, I think that we need to be looking at how do we practically boast in the Lord and not boast in ourselves, and that is somehow without trying to sound super spiritual because you could boast in your sounding super spiritual, but somehow any conversation that is meant where you are, are there to exalt yourself you are going to somehow turn into to, to two topics of conversation, one that you have any understanding of who God is. And the second, that you know him. So somehow you're going to communicate to others, I'm just so glad that I understand that every good and perfect gift is from above and God deserves all the glory and all the credit. And I can't believe that I know him because I don't deserve to because at heart I was born a rebel against him. And that is the way the conversation needs to go. And that is how we need to do it within the body And it's closely related to the fifth practice, which I think we'll end on this morning. But uh, the fifth practice, we've seen it's patient, it's kind, it's not jealous, it does not uh, brag or it does not boast. And the fifth one, it doesn't practice pride. Love is not arrogant. True love is the opposite of a proud spirit. I find the definition of pride 
interesting in Webster's Dictionary. Listen to Webster's definition of pride. An inordinate amount of self-esteem or an unreasonable amount of conceit. So an extraordinary amount of self-esteem. Well, what is the ordinary amount that we should have? And if it's above that, how do we gauge that? And what was the ordinary amount 40 years ago, and what is it today? And what is an unreasonable amount of conceit? How much conceit can I have? Unbelievable. And, of course, the Corinthians knew all about this. Uh, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians 4, I'm going to read verses 6 through 10. It says, Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? You are already filled. You have already become rich. You have become kings without us. Indeed, I wish that you had become kings so that we also might reign with you. For I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. Here's a lot of sarcasm here, and he's saying, you've already arrived. You're already in the kingdom. Skip down to verse 18. Now some have become arrogant as though I were not coming to you. There is a, 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 a pride that just was evident in the way they looked at themselves and their own spirituality that they had arrived. And so the application is clear and is very similar to the boasting, but it's everything you can do against self-promotion is practicing love, where you can build up others instead of building up yourself. And there's something in each one of us where we long, we long for others to say how great we are. And yet, What the scripture is teaching us is that our lives should be characterized by building others up to the glory of Christ. And this is not, this this affects everyone. This week I was reading, uh, I looked this up because I was curious about this. And and whenever I think about pride, I look to the Puritans because there's a book um, that we had to read in, um, in, in seminary and it's by Richard Baxter. It's called The Reformed Pastor. And, uh, his picture on the front is just scary. His eyes follow you any way it looks. It's, it's, a, it's like the Mona Lisa or something like that. It just, it just, and and it, he's got this stern look. In the 1600s, he you know, wore like a, I don't know, like a baby cap or something like that. And he was just like this Puritan. And, but what, what did Puritan preachers struggle with? And he said pride. And this is, this is what he wrote for preachers. This is ministerial pride, he calls it. So, so think about this. If preachers are struggling with this, and I love this, I'm going to read three quotes. Uh, I kind of, it's a longer section, but I kind of just take three little excerpts. But because he talked about ministerial pride while you're preparing the sermon, while you're preaching the sermon, and after the sermon's over. All right? So he says this. This is before the sermon. He says, How frequently does pride go with us in our study? 
and there sit with us and do our work? How oft does it choose our subject, and more frequently still our words, and ornaments? Pride pollutes rather than polishes. During the sermon, he continues, and when the pride has made the sermon in the study, it goes with us into the pulpit and forms our tone and animates us in the delivery and takes us off from that which may be displeasing, however so necessary, and sets us in pursuit of vain applause. In short, the sum of all is this, pride makes men both in studying and preaching to seek themselves and deny God. And then, after the sermon, when the sermon is done, pride goes home with them and makes them more eager to know whether they were applauded than whether they did prevail for the saving of souls. Were it not for shame, they could find in their hearts to ask people how they liked them and to draw out their commendations. For if they, pursue, if they perceive that they are highly thought of, they rejoice as having attained to their end. But if they see that they are considered weak and common men, they are displeased having missed the prize they had in view. He's hammering pastors for the desire for people to applaud them for what they have done in the pulpit. And if that's who he hammers, seeing that in the 16th century, that's what preachers were like, who didn't wear buttons, you know, who were, who were totally trying to be as plain as possible, if, if that's what's going on in the 16th century, what's going on today? And if that's what's going on with preachers, what's going on with every one of us? What is going on in our hearts? Listen to Jonathan Edwards on pride. Pride is a person having too high of an opinion of himself. Pride is the first sin that ever entered into the universe and the last sin that is rooted out. Pride is the worst sin. It is the most secret of all sins, and there is no other matter in which the heart is more deceitful and unsearchable. Alas, how much pride the best have in their hearts. Pride is God's most stubborn enemy. There is no sin so much like the devil as pride. It is a secret and subtle sin and appears in a great many shapes which are undetected and unsuspected. As C.S. Lewis said, there is no greater pride than those who pose humility. So how do we do it? How do we love? We love by crucifying pride, by not being arrogant, by focusing the attention on others and not thinking about any attention for ourselves. These are some of the keys to properly loving one another. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this reminder. Thank you for the opportunity we have to look at our own hearts. Thank you for this passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4, with these attributes reminding us of what love really looks like. And Father, thank you for helping us giving us the opportunity to look at our own lives. We desire to be changed. We desire 
to be unlike the Corinthians were and how they were supposed to be is what we desire. We desire to be like Jesus Christ, overwhelmed by the kindness he has bestowed on us and us bestowing that on others. So this week in small things and in great things, help us to be more like Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.